then what am I doing it for? You know, that, that's what drives me. What drives me is on the, on the sustainability end of it is I'm doing this for, you know, not just Japan, but I think somebody has to raise his voice about a lot of topics that are necessary for, to save civilization in 30, 40 right. years. Right, right. That, that is what drives me the most of all. Welcome to another episode of Made with Japan. Our topic for this episode is corporate governance. Now, my guest, Nick Benish, describes himself as a doer. And what he has been doing for a long, long time here in Japan is stirring the pot called corporate governance back in the kitchen. And some of his work has laid the groundwork for advancement in Japan regarding corporate governance and corporate value. So let's see what Nick's got cooking for us on his burner. My wonderful guest today is Nick Benish. I always call you Benish, but ben- Benish is the right That's, Good for you. It's, it's spelled in Czech uh, with a yeah. check mark over the S, which means Benish. Benish. Okay. Um, I believe if my memory serves me correct, I first met you at J.P. Morgan in the mid-80s, but you're my uh, senpai. I think, I think you went to UCLA Business School as well. Is that right? So you, you studied under Bill Ochi, right? That's right. I, I was a member of his big uh, project that came yeah. to Japan many times, and I was in his interpreter. Oh, really? Okay. Well, okay. That was uh, Theory Z, was it? Well, that was it was the sequel to Theory Z. Okay. He was the, as you know, the quintessential sort of one of three Vanish Number One type books. Right. That, uh, was lauding the Japanese miracle after Herman Kahn's book about 10 years earlier. And so he wrote, a, he was funded by the Navy to try and, to millions of dollars, actually, after Theory Z. He was funded by the Navy to do this big project, uh, which turned into a book called The M Form Society. Oh, right. I remember the Multi Visional Form Society. And I was part of this two year project wow. full of graduate students coming here to interview all these famous people. Wow. And with my whole thing, Japanese, I, if you can believe that, I was the, inter- the, the <laughs> no, interpreter. No. Wow. And it, was, it was, what, by the Navy, did you say, funded? The, the Navy was the largest funding group by far, uh, and it was millions of dollars. Why the Navy? Well, because the Navy, uh, you know, kind of like the Japanese Navy was before the war, was the smartest, is probably the smartest of the three military groups in the U.S. and thinks uh-huh. long term and and wants to understand how to manage organizations. Because, you know, you're on a ship, you're managing a small organization. It's very important. Mm-hmm. Yep. Of course, it's important in any arm of the Army. But Navy thinks long term like that. It's cool, actually. Mm-hmm. Right. And they just, they just gave them those money and said, you do whatever you think is necessary. Figure out how, what the Japanese are doing better than us. Wow. Uh, it was fascinating. And the, the whole sort of hypothesis of this system was that there's something about the structure of Japanese society and how it, it, it allows least loose sort of clannish organizations to interlace with, on a more efficient basis. It results in better policy. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's entirely true, but there are certainly aspects in Japan which lead to that. And some, it's, there's some deleterious aspects to that as well. Um, but it was fascinating because we would we'd come over here and interview all these, these famous folks and senior policymakers. And I, that, that sort of got me 
um, or kept me, I should say, interested in policymaking in general. Uh-huh. An organization that I'm, I've always been interested in the intersection of law and management. And, yeah. and that with policymaking, because I okay. have people in my background who have been major figures in, in policymaking. So it's kind of raised, I think, mm-hmm. with that in the, in the in sort of the family, you know, right, right. politically about what should be done. That I'm, I'm sort of a, a quasi-immigrant to Japan who is actually the son of an immigrant to the United States from Czechoslovakia during the war. Mm. Because as you may know, my, my uh, great grand was President Benish, who was mm. kicked out at the Munich conference and, yeah. and, uh, and all that. So we had to flee, or at least that mm. side of the family had to flee. Yeah. Wow. But I'm, uh, I guess you could say I'm a serial immigrant in a way. I mean, or <laughs> my family is, you know, because, you know, there, everyone else was immigrants 100 years ago from uh, Jewish uh, parts of Russia or Czechoslovakia in this case. So yeah, yeah. here I'm kind of going around the world. I guess the next month, maybe my son will, you know, emigrate to Canada or someplace like that. So what was your father like or mother? Well, my father uh, mm-hmm. was a ma- is alive still mm-hmm. in his 90s, uh, chugging along really well. And he he was a mathematician at Bell Labs. <laughs> um, and that was a lot of fun because when I was seven years old or so, I was into science and I could visit him at Bell Labs. And uh, in those days, you know, Bell Labs was the place to be for high tech uh, R and D, you know, so they, right. down the hall, he was a probability mathematician, uh-huh. so, you know, all this really strange equations that I can't understand any of, <laughs> but, um, down the hall is Bill Shockley who invented a transistor mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. away is the guy who invented the laser and there's wow. a, you know, laser beams shooting around in his office. Wow. It was cool. And what was the probability of you growing up in the United States to come work in Japan and spend most of your career in Japan back then? <laughs> that's, that's a really good way of putting it. That's a really good way of putting Because I was on the East Coast. Okay. And the East Coast, you know, you don't see a lot of Asian faces, particularly right. back then, 1950s, yeah. 60s growing up. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I saw a single Asian face until I was in uh, high school, perhaps. No? And um, no, and on the East Coast, you are imbued more than on the West Coast with the notion that all of civilization emanates from Europe. Because <laughs> right. my family had emanated from Europe. Right, right, yeah, right. You know, right. it was logical to think that. Uh, so um, the reason I ended up, actually, most of the biggest reasons is that I was put on the waiting list at Harvard mm-hmm. and didn't get in. Yeah. And my, my, one of my safety schools, didn't even talk it that way, was Stanford. Mm-hmm. And on the East Coast, people would say, hey, I just got into Stanford. Nowadays, it's a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back, back then, they thought you meant Stanford, Connecticut. <laughs> they really did. What, what university is in, in Stanford, Connecticut? They really would say that. Yeah. Anyway, I went to Stanford, and they have a more Asian-looking. Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. West Coast, they're yeah, Japanese, yeah. Americans, Chinese Americans, more yeah. Asian Americans in school. And I... Started. I read. I, I uh, read the uh, huge thick textbook on uh, Western civilization that they make you read as a freshman, as part of the mandatory courses. And in that, there's like there's a thousand pages, but there's like three pages on the Meiji Restoration. And I was fascinated by the Meiji Restoration. Mm. I was fascinated that uh, you know why could a country that came late to the table 
um, that was not from Europe, uh, industrialized very, very rapidly, in fact, more rapidly than many other countries in, in Europe. And what was the secret to that success? Because if you could understand that, you could you know, import it to China or India or other developing nations. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a very important thing to understand. And um, so I became just fascinated with Japan and took all these, uh, as many courses as I could, and sort of hijacked my way into the graduate course on economic development history mm -hmm. of Japan by Peter Deuce. Mm -hmm. And um, but I then I thought mm, I was a I was kind of a doer in those days, right? So I I didn't like to study so much as do. And mm -hmm. so uh, you know I worked in a ranch before my freshman year and after my no way really after no. I, I worked on a freighter going down to South America and all these ports. <laughs> and so the first thing I wanted to do was go to Japan. Yeah, I went to Japan as a sophomore, and I studied at Sophia International yeah. okay. uh, University for you know four months. I didn't like a Japanese program there. I went back to Stanford. This is what in the nineteen late mid seventies. This is um, well, nineteen seventy five. Yeah, right. into yeah, okay. Japan, Sophia, and I went back to Stanford and, and studied Japanese more so that I could go and take my third year to restart the training program at Keio. Okay. Okay. We had a sort of on and off, uh, shall we say, uh, what, an overseas study program where we trade students with Keio. So mm -hmm. I went to the Keio uh, Japanese language training program for a year, which was a lot of fun because at that time it was 98%, well, 80% Taiwanese <laughs> from Taiwan studying Japanese so they could learn med medicine at medical school and become doctors mm -hmm. in the countryside of japan mm -hmm. that's fascinating you know? and wow. the only trouble with that course was that it would teach you how to speak japanese if you had a weird not weird but if you, if you had a a accent that was influenced by chinese okay neural network um, right. <laughs> in the brain and so you had pronunciation problems, but you could read all the characters perfectly. Right, right, right. Right. So yeah, you know, keeping up with those guys and characters was just impossible. But the training for speaking wasn't exactly customized for me. Yeah. So I, I took Stanford's graduate student training program and, and all their tapes and just studied the hell out of those at night. So uh, I really didn't study KO that much. I had some friends, I had a lot of friends, but... Um, the program didn't help me so much as the Stanford book and the tapes and, and just doing that very intensively for a long time. So, um, but after that, you know, I was always intrigued with this notion of why is Japan succeeding? Yeah. And I went back uh, and graduated, uh, got, got married very quickly to a very lovable Japanese woman I'm still married to. Wow, and wonderful. I wanted to go back to Japan. So she wanted to go somewhere other than Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And, um, I said, well, where do you want to go? Well, Hokkaido. I never been to Hokkaido much. Yeah. Wow. An English teacher in Hokkaido. Didn't realize that. Wow. Yeah. And, and became bored of that and started my own English school with her and did that for a year and a half. And then I went to law school at UCLA and then later on uh, business school. Okay. Wow. Man, you, you took a long journey to <laughs> when, when, I met, when I met you because uh, my, my journey was a little more simple <laughs> when I met you. <laughs> but wow. Very interesting. So, so, but let me see. You you joined J.P. Morgan when then? After after yeah, you said B school uh, after JD, oh. I think they had JD MBA program at UCLA. So right, okay. So, law and business, and I uh, 
decided after being a uh, legal trainee at Baker McKenzie, the mm-hmm. law firm here yeah. in, in yeah. Tokyo, for a year or a, a summer, that I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, so that's why I applied to the B school. And okay. I really wanted to go into consulting, but we'd always get in the last interview stage and never quite make it into BCG or McKinsey. Right. So right. <laughs> I, 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 well, investment banking was offered up as um, yeah. for the next best choice. And that actually was quite exciting at, at Morgan, as uh, you remember. Yeah. Back yeah. then, you know, it was, it was a bubble. Yeah. And yeah. Japan very quickly and did everything from swaps to M&A to funny bonds to yeah equity research uh, so, equity so you you were in if i remember the capital markets part of the well er, right? early on yeah my first job was the swaps group yeah okay right and i invented things like the, the inverse floater you may remember that <laughs> that uh my boss would not allow me to sell to daichi life yeah believe it or not because the profit would be booked in london <laughs> and not <laughs> not i see yeah and therefore he spent an entire night at a, at a sort of a, uh, a club, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what a club was. Trying to convince Deutsche Life to not do, believe it or not, hundreds of million dollars of these inverse floaters bonds that I had invented. And the next day, they said, well, you know, bleep it. We'll do them anyway. And they, they did 300 million with Stanley. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, really? Morgan Stanley, right? They went right to Morgan Stanley and took my product and said, can you, can you replicate this? And they said, yeah, sure. No problem. And the next day, there was, you know, 200 million from Fannie Mae issued, all bought by Deutsche Life, again, through Morgan Stanley. Uh-huh. A whole slew of inverse floaters that took off. Yeah. Floater bonds that took off. Yeah. That. yeah. And, uh, and I, did, I did that sort of stuff. And then, you know, putting a large swap you know, masses of huge swaps together for life insurance companies right. at first. And then I was also doing, as you may recall, these uh, M&A type deals where the Astrolife bought a piece of Payne Weber, the securities mm-hmm. firm here in the U.S. Right, right, right. Um, that was a transaction I started and later on got sent to the real estate group. And then from Tokyo right. Real Estate, I was head of real estate in, in uh, Europe. Um, and then I came back and believe it or not, after a year on equity sales, we were just going to start on equities then, right? So we had right, right, a big right. project. And I was a member of this team in, in, in London that was in charge of the London end of how do we get into the equities business yeah. together with McKinsey and these other folks. And that, that was exciting. But they because of that, they, they made me head of uh, research here, if you can believe this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what is Nick Bennett doing equity research? Um, at, at J.P. Morgan Tokyo. Um, which was fun because the market had just, of course, tanked, as you may well. This is 1993. Okay, right. right? Yeah. yeah. And um, we were at like 15,000 on the Nikkei. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe it or not, I wrote this uh, report back then saying, I don't think this market is going to clear until we get to 6,000 or 7,000 on the Nikkei. Really? Well, and, you know, about call. 10 years later, that's exactly what happened. Good call. <laughs> Lucky call. <Yeah. laughs> well, that helps. That helps. Oh. Right. So, so, so you were a career J.P. Morgan guy. Uh, you, did you go to some other financial institutions? No, nope, I did not. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was found the, the corporate culture, you know, like Lehman and place like that, yeah. uh, less friendly, uh, less um, yeah. client focused than Morgan. Although Morgan, over time, as you may recall, uh-huh. kind of transformed itself a bit more on the Salomon direction. Yeah. And I and I uh, I didn't like that, frankly. 
Yeah, um, yeah. In fact, had some of those large life insurance companies that I'd done these large transactions later on lecture me on. By the way, Nick, let me take you aside. Uh, you know, never bring that guy to visit me again. <laughs> 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 when I just introduced, you know, the head of swaps or something. Right, 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 right. He doesn't think of us as a relationship the way you guys used to. Yeah, so yeah, I think yeah, they've improved yeah, since then. I think they've improved a lot. Yeah, yeah. Since Chase came over. Right. But right. I left in 1994 because I wanted to go into the MA business. I see. And at that point in time, uh, mm. Morgan, if it did any MA, it was only doing MA for the very largest, you know, issuer clients. Mm. And I thought getting into the middle market of MA would be much more interesting and have much more upside potential in Japan long term. So I struck out and formed a partnership with another guy called Kamakura. Corporation. Right. I remember that. I remember it, that. The, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. advisory team side of that. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Because we, we we actually we left at the same time. I left JP Morgan in 1994. <laughs> I, 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 that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I, went, I went to the uh shall I say the other side. I went to Goldman for a couple of years and then <laughs> Yeah. Was it was the corporate culture better? Oh, uh totally. It was totally different. It's like, yeah. you know, I mean, JP Morgan, I remember, you know, we would go out and I'd, you know, I'd go out skiing or playing tennis with all kinds of people from different parts of the division. Um, but at J at Goldman, I felt it was more like a, every, a lot of chieftains, partners, right, right, like, right. like Daimyo, right? And nobody really sort of community. Well, not nobody, but, <clears throat> but it was a, it was a totally different culture. So I thought that was. That was kind of interesting, but did that for a couple of years. Then I went worked for a hedge fund, and that was another totally different <laughs> kind of culture. Yeah, you, so. You've done a lot of great, you know, uh, broad experience of things. I think we both have. Yeah, yeah. Well, we could write a, a series of fascinating books on yeah. what happens being on, you know, on yeah. boards and in corporate culture and investment. Yeah. Well, um, let me let's go into what you're currently doing, but but. Um, seems like to me your your story so far your first uh, interaction with japan was when japan was number one and you know japan was this miracle and there must be something good going on there so we need to find out more about what's going on now i read your blog posts and whatnot <laughs> and it's 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 totally you know 180 degrees the other side it seems like it's like japan can't do anything right <laughs> kind of. oh so, please don't so, characterize me that way yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Just to make it to make a complicated story very simple. <laughs> well, maybe um, maybe that uh, the way uh, shall we say certain Japanese people want to characterize. Uh huh. Um, and I'll try to be polite about this. Yeah. A white face who uh -huh. says what he thinks uh -huh. and um, <laughs> and doesn't stop. When I first started studying about Japan, you know, really, when I first got interested as a freshman in college, yeah, um, it was not known that Japan was an economic miracle. Mm -hmm. It was not known at all, and and I've always been a favor of the the underdog, <laughs> and um, I thought it was wonderful that Japan had managed to uh, industrialize so fast, and and there are aspects to the Second World War and the genesis of it that were anti-colonial, and I I sympathize with those, um, to be frank. Um, and um, the I remember calling my mother and saying, well, I'm going to Japan next year. I just decided I'm going to go to Sofia. 
And she says, well, no, you're not. Why are you going to tiny country doing nothing go to go to france or germany something like that i said no I'm, I'm sorry i'm going it's going to be the future it's expanding a lot i mean you just didn't know the facts and uh and she said well i won't pay for it and so i i said well fine i'll you know work as an english teacher on the side and pay for it myself so i went and that's what i did no. um but then you know during the bubble you saw a lot of the defects to poor governance pouring out and then in the M&A world, uh, working behind the scenes doing M&A as either at, at Morgan. And, you know, I did deals like getting started, the restructuring, i.e. the sale of Rockefeller Center by Mitsubishi mm-hmm. State. And mm-hmm. believe me, there's a lot of very, very, very interesting corporate governance stuff that happened in the background there. <laughs> I'll about that later over a drink sometime. Yeah. Um, so I would, you know. You see what goes wrong in companies, in Japanese companies, when governance doesn't work. Okay. And it's not pretty. It's ugly. It's ugly anywhere in the world, and it's just as ugly in Japan. Yeah, okay. Um, and you learn over time as well, this is not good for shareholders, uh, nor is it good for my business, which is m and mm-hmm. These deals, which are, would be good for shareholders and employees if they could save the company sooner by selling off non-core assets, et cetera. Um, they don't do until last minute, and then the whole company goes under, and then everybody suffers. Right, right, right. Um, and it it uh, it's not only not good for your business, but beyond that, it's not good for Japan shareholders or the people. Um, and so, you know, seeing this underside, which is ugly, of what happens behind the scenes time and time again, and then sitting on boards and seeing it again. Because at first, the boards I sat on were all troubled companies, where you see the worst aspects of what you have to clean up or, you know, live door after the scandal and this kind of stuff. Over time, my interest in improving corporate governance here, which on you know, the policymaking side, sort of writing lots of articles, because I've written, I mean, literally, I don't know, 60 or 70 articles over the years and have to do with M&A slash governance, uh, more and more governance over the last 10 years. My, my, my interest shifted from, uh, well, the more sort of, optimal allocation of assets via M&A faster to sort of improving management overall and improving the economy overall, um, which, and also, you know, avoiding pain on the part of people, particularly employees. Mm. Um, and now, you know, of course, it's in the last 10 years, it's shifted more to a sustainability ESG framework, is, you know, sort of added on top of all those as an extra layer of my interest. And, the reason why uh, you, know, you might think that I'm critical is because, yes, I am critical. Uh, I like to say what needs to be said, even if it is I'm different from the present. And if people want to take that as criticism, they can. I'm trying to improve the system. And uh, since I'm a doer, I, I don't, if, you know, just writing articles doesn't make me happy. I like to actually get in there talk to people or the politicians or the bureaucrats, whoever I can, and actually try and change the system for the better, because I feel like I'm a, a quasi-citizen here. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I Believe me, I don't do this for money. Mm. Believe me. I was just going yeah. to last night, because I thought it might be interesting for you and your listeners. You know, how much money has Nick Medish made on the Board Director Training Institute over the last 12 years? How much money do you think I've made, personally? It's probably pro bono. Yeah, it, it's uh, pretty much zero. 
pretty much zero. Yeah. Even if you add in salary I've received, mm -hmm. um, and even if you don't add in opportunity costs from all the money I could have made from other jobs in the meantime, and even if you don't add in more than one or two percent for the half million or so dollars I donated to this pre-tax mm. and, and the investment income I could have made in that money had an investment. Even if you don't add all that, it's it's about zero. Net-net. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, so I've, I've donated 12 years of my life yeah. for nothing. Sort <laughs> <laughs> of what you could say. You sound a little bit you, you sound a little bit angry, but but not well right. no 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 it's the point <laughs> is if if what I do and the statements I make and the articles yeah. I write yeah, yeah. have a positive influence on change and accelerating yeah. changes that are necessary here that improves the economy and yeah. management and corporate values and jobs for people and sustainability in the economy then what am I doing it for? You know, that, that's what drives me. What drives me is on the, on the sustainability end of it is I'm doing this for, you know, not just Japan, but I think somebody has to raise his voice about a lot of topics that are necessary for, to save civilization in 30, 40 right. years. Right, right. That, that is what drives me the most of all in okay. the last five or seven years. Yeah. Uh, now, Shareholder value is part of that, um, but it's it's just one part of it. Yeah. Um, well, well, let me just, let me just ask a question. It is um, you know a lot of people these days are talking about corporate governance, but I think the first person that I actually heard the phrase was probably you, Nick. Way way back, way back when. Probably. I, I mean, I, I, especially in face to face, you know, um, and so. Um, Wondering what triggered, well, you said that thing about your experience with the Rockefeller Center, but what triggered this sort of interest, your, your life work in, in corporate governance? I suppose the single thing was participating in Uchi's project. Really? Yeah. And uh, seeing, you know, talking constantly about things that were working well here then. Yeah. And thinking deeply about, you know, transactions, costs-based organizational design and organizational theory and what makes organizations work better. And then sort of adding on to that my knowledge of corporate law that I was learning in law school and this sort of thing, and, and constantly thinking about what is governance as I learned more about it, particularly as a director. As I say, I, I, I'm driven by, I have a sort of policymaking mind in, in, I was brought up that way, I think, or, mm -hmm. or it's part of my identity because I had people in my family who were involved in it. You know, mm -hmm. Norbert Wiener, who invented cybernetics, or mm. my great, my, my granduncle. Oh, wow. Or, you know, Zbigniew Brzezinski was my uncle. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. Wow. Yeah. So it, it tends to, you know, and you probably carry some of this yourself, mm. uh, being related to the famous Eiichi Shibusawa, who did so many wonderful things, you probably had a, some self-expectation there or hope that you could do something like that too when you were a kid. I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> I mean, but I, I, I had such dreams when I was a kid. Yeah. And okay. I would like to make my stamp on the world. 
It's actually not just rant and rave a lot, but have an actual impact that people will look back later on and say, well, yeah, Nick did some good stuff. Nick actually got something done. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, that's what one of my employees said when he worked hard for me for the first six or seven years of of, uh, BDTI. And he he finally left. Uh, But he said, you know, you're you're a doer. And I I realized, yeah, he's right. You know, I, I don't just talk about it. I actually try and get these policies put in place and or practices working in companies. And that's part of what the training is all about. The reason I, 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 uh, I'm so passionate about director training is that after proposing structural ways to improve corporate governance for so many years, the law and then the corporate governance code, you know, I'm getting that started um, and all sorts of other aspects uh, that I could go over ad infinitum that if, you know, you'd be sort of surprised the number of corporate governance policies are things that I initially seeded and someone else put in place, but I seeded yeah. it. Um, the, kind, of like, kind of like the Morgan Stanley deal, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a quick, you pick up fast, man. That's exactly, but that's fine. Yeah, if yeah, you want to yeah. get them done, yeah. it doesn't matter if someone else do it, does it, right? Right, right, yeah. It yeah. happens. Right, yeah. You get impact. You know what you did, right? So yeah. the growth strategy task force of the ACCJ was kind of the the playbook for abonomics structural reform third arrow. Mm-hmm. And they, they basically cribbed from that to form the third arrow. Mm-hmm. But that's fine. Yeah. We don't get credit. That, that's all right. Yeah. The concept got started and ran under its own uh, volition then. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, that's very important to me because you know you, you have a short life. And uh, when it's over, you want to look back at your life and want others to look back at it and say, well, you know, he got something done. And to me, getting something done isn't linked only to money. In fact, it's not linked to money that much. Yep. The Mm -hmm. um, maybe I say that because I haven't made so much money. (laughs) Well, actually, I say the same thing. I say the same thing, Nick. (laughs) I I think we we probably have a lot more similarities than they look like on the surface. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. In my my family, I have all these famous people, but none of them made a lot of wealth and (laughs) passed. So I think that's maybe close. ditto, ditto, ditto. Same thing over. Here. Um, but you know, you know what you did in way of impact, mm-hmm. and that's something to feel proud of, and from which I get my identity. Mm-hmm. That, maybe I didn't. Maybe I distracted myself in the way of not answering your question. That's a nice distraction, actually. Um, why don't we tell, talk about with the audience? Explain to the audience um, what BDTI exactly is. Okay, sure. Well, it stands for the Board Director Training Institute of Japan. And what it is, is a, what they call a koeki hoji, uh, which is a nonprofit, but a very special kind of nonprofit that's certified by the government as being one that uh, does activities that serve the public interest. So uh, this is a very hard designation or certification to get, and it means we're regulated by the cabinet office who comes to inspect this every three years or so. But it means uh, that donations to us are tax benefited. So you get a, you get a tax credit. Actually, it's, it's not just, it's more than a tax deduction. You get a hefty tax credit. So if you have any excess funds, please donate and, and, and uh, ask your friends. In order that you can lower the price of activities, in this case, director training or governance related training that are deemed to be good for society, that, 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 that private enterprises are not providing enough of. 
And so our getting the certification was the first time in history that the Japanese government anywhere in print or being verbally acknowledged that director or governance training is a good thing. And that was actually quite important to me. It mm. was just as important as setting up as a nonprofit this way. The other, way, the other reason I set up as a nonprofit this way was that if you do it uh, under this flag, no single party can control you. Mm -hmm. So even if, you know, all these activists uh, right. want to come in and give us donations, each donor only gets one vote. Right. That means no single party can control you. And if a gang of them want to try and control you, well, you just get three, you know, 10 other friends to become members and mm -hmm. they can't control you. Right. right. Um, secondly, because a nonprofit that can't pay dividends, it's clear I'm not doing this for the money. Mm -hmm. Right. Everything I've dumped into it pre-tax in my case mm -hmm. uh, is never coming back to me mm -hmm. um, unless I get a salary, which right now I don't have <laughs> much of. Um, uh, so, you know, by positioning this way, I could position it as something that I hoped Japanese institutional investors would see as the least threatening, most beneficial possible sort of pro-sustainability, pro-governance, pro-improving their investments thing to support. Um, the irony of the whole situation is that was the thought, you know, sitting in this aircraft carrier that was the most supportable thing in the world. Mm -hmm. um, that was the initial thought going into it. But 99% of our money comes from foreign investors, <laughs> institutions, mm -hmm. funds, mm -hmm. activists, etc. Mm -hmm. Some of them very major names like yeah. you know, Bailey Gifford or Aberdeen, this kind of place. Um, and less than 1% comes from Japanese sources. So the Japanese institutional investment community doesn't seem to think that director training or governance training is needed by Japan at all. That's an interesting figure. <laughs> 99 to 1. Figure. No, wow. It's a fascinating figure. Uh, can you explain that to me? Can <laughs> I, I explain it? Um, Sorry. What, do you, what, do you, what would you hypothesize is the reason? It's not like they don't know we're here. Um, they're just not used to donating or, or <clears throat> contributing, not donating, contributing to a cause that would actually in the long term would be beneficial um, because there's no precedent. Yeah, we haven't done it so far. They're not used to donating in general, mm -hmm. but most of them, that's, that's one thing. I mean, even you know, foreign pension funds it's very hard to get donations out of pension fund, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Assets come in, you're supposed to do it, use it for beneficiaries. Um, another big reason is that, you know, many fund managers come from or are still at bank or financial group affiliated fund managers. Mm -hmm. And so they've yeah. never sat or, or even come close to a public board. So right. they don't know what goes wrong on them. Right, right. You assume right. all these fine, upstanding characters who are respected by society must be doing a good job on boards, mm. must be qualified. Mm. And they don't, I mean, ever sat on boards, you know, I, I've sat on boards here for, I'm in my 13th year of having sat on mm -hmm. various boards. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. have a good notion of what can go wrong and what mm -hmm. happens, uh, uh, you know, badly behind the curtain when they make the sausages. And but but most institutional investors and, and foreign investors I would include with them mainly mm -hmm. are have never sat on a board, a real public company board or not, or you know, one with many investors. Mm -hmm. uh, so they don't know how useful it is for outside directors, particularly when trying to increase them in a country like Japan, to have people with common skill sets that directors should have. Mm -hmm. Knowledge about company law, securities law, corporate governance theory, practice, 
uh, finance, particularly how to read financial statements, all this kind of stuff, M&A, you know, if you don't have strategy, uh, some set of, you know, common skill sets at a high level of these issues, it's hard for a board to, to think with one mind and talk with one voice and work together effectively to oversee things in the right direction. And they don't realize that. Mm -hmm. uh, if they realize that, they would realize it's much better for their portfolios that there'd be much more director training at yeah. a serious level. Yeah. Can I ask you the, the, the directors that come through the program, they're all outside independent directors or do you have internal in-house directors? Well? Um, most, no, no, actually uh, 80%, 75% more, like 70% of the people we uh, train are all internal I see. And you know, executive officers right, right, right. are likely to be directors uh, got it. Right. a year or two from now. And that's okay. actually the best time to train people because yeah. their minds are still flexible and they don't have an idea of yeah. how, what you say and do not say on our board. They haven't what's, been trained what, yet. What, what, what's, an, what's an aha moment for somebody like that? Well, the biggest aha moment that you hear in, in the surveys is Gosh, because you know, I spend the most time in the Japanese course, which is most people take the Japanese course, uh, the, the first level course, and uh, has uh, devotes the most time, uh, more than three hours, I think, to, um, to finance and reading financial statements. And as a result of that, mm -hmm. uh, Professor Noma at Sotsubashi goes over that topic. Mm -hmm. And it's not particularly, you know, you being you know, who you are, you wouldn't view it as particularly uh, complex, high-level stuff. But we get a lot of comments that are effective. Wow, that was really helpful because now I understand how little I can understand from financial statements, how much more I need to study finance. Mm. The other thing that comes up frequently is seriously, people, even people who have served as directors will say, that was very useful. Thank you very much. You know, now I understand what the real role of a director is. Mm. It, you know, because if you if you don't know the the fundamentals of the law and governance, and now of course the governance code and what is expected of directors, even just legally, and the duties or, or liabilities you are under, then it in Japan is since you have so much internal promotion and insider uh, dominated boards, uh, to a lot of people it's just another promotion. It's right. just a management job. Mm -hmm. And they don't view crossing this line when they enter the boardroom and are promoted, quote, promoted right. as executives uh, to be board members. They don't realize that they're that you're going into a different church. Mm -hmm. yeah. You go right. into, first of all, you go into, into a church. It's, it's kind yeah. of a sanctified place. You should <laughs> that way. Right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, obligation to God, kind of like a monk or a Buddhist priest, right? Yeah. And um but they don't think that way. They think I'm no. just, uh, you know, I just got promoted. I'm happy. In, in a way, it's the sort of the final, final post or, you know, that, that, you know, that, that person gained after 40, 50 years of service, that's right? Precisely right. That's precisely right. And that's part of the problem is that yeah. um, it's viewed that it's a recognition by my seniors that I'm qualified to be a director. It's not actually that. It's a recognition by your seniors that they trust you and think you're going to be loyal to them. And often, you know, pursue their legacy strategy without changing it much so that their name will, will live in history. 
Um, and you know, when they glare at you on the board, you'll do what they want. Um, but they think you've done a good job as well so far. It's, it's a mixture of those kind of things. And, and often one of the last thing it is, is that they think you're gonna be a good director. <laughs> they want you, the president who is largely who influences these decisions wants you to shut up when he glares at you. Right. And that's true with a lot of outside directors as well. That is the- If, they, if, they, if they speak up, right? And they're in the board meeting, which- yeah, may... <laughs> that's right. Well, well, internal guys don't speak up much at all. Yeah. Oh. So you can consider that, you know, if even if 40% of the board is outside, that means 6% is inside. Mm -hmm. uh, and that means half the board is not the CEO, but is inside. And that those guys don't say very much on many Japanese boards. Right, right. Except with respect to the division or function that they're in charge of. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a wasted board seat. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a good way to put it, actually. But what do you think? Like, looking back from 10, 20 years ago, at least in form, many of the Japanese corporations have their governance practices in place in form, but maybe okay. not in essence. Is that, is that yeah. your take or? Well, it depends. On the, it, it's really, really diverse now as to the company. You know, that, that's the good news is that mm -hmm. we've managed through this uh, uh, stewardship code and the corporate governance code. I mean, if you told me eight years ago, I would get this corporate governance code started and you know, convince the diet members and then give a speech to LDP to get the thing started and then put all these things in it, uh, executive sessions and diversity and outside directors and committees and all this kind of stuff, evaluation of the board, all these things come from my memos. I would never believed you, but not only was that put in place, but as a result of it being put in place, since Japanese organizations generally try to follow the rules, that's the good aspect of society here that can be taken advantage of even more if we, if we just do it. Um, that most people, yes, uh, in terms of structure are, are catching up or trying to pretty quickly, most good companies. You, you know, you can, the bad companies don't and they, or they put the structure in, it means nothing. It's almost meaningless. Uh, the essence though is absolutely the right word. Um, essence and habits and behavioral patterns are very hard to change. If you grew up and typically been on other boards before 2015 when the corporate governance code came into place. And so it's, I think what, the way I characterize it in my mind is to say we're kind of 40% of the way through this tunnel, this long tunnel of internalizing thought patterns and ways of having debates and ways of of structuring the priority of topics and the, the agenda and it's how it's okay to disagree with people and uh, the understanding why you, it would be helpful to have an independent chair and stuff like that. Uh, the really utility of an executive session and, and why help being honest with your opinions and not holding back is, is better than the reverse. And we're, we're, we're internalizing all of those expectations that lie under the framework that we put in place. Um, without which the framework will not function very well. And it takes time to do that because you're talking about human beings here who, you know, they grew up in Mitsubishi Shoji and didn't work quite that way. So, so you're one of the pioneers or the initiator for corporate governance code here in Japan. Um, what, what, what was the point that sort of moved the needle, you think, 
was it just sort of the environmental change in the in the sort of the I don't know, the, the flow of what, what's happening in the world then? Or was there a key person that sort of moved it or, you know? Well, when I, I, three things immediately came to mind when you said that. Yeah. Uh, one was the, as I, you probably saw on the link I sent you, the Growth Strategy Task Force white paper that we wrote at the ACCJ in 2010, mm-hmm. which basically in 100 pages plus 100 pages of economic analysis by one of Japan's most famous productivity economists, put in in very stark terms, guys, you're walking, you're headed for a fiscal and demographic cliff. And it matters to us because this is a market that we invest in and we are in and we do not want Japan to go under. So what you need is to take political leadership and get the bureaucrats out of the room and use much more objective analysis of what's wrong with the economy and its structure and what would improve or might improve as a hope of improving productivity, total factor productivity, uh, because that's the only way out of your hole. We can't improve, we can't increase the number of people. It's shrinking demographically very easily. And we have a lot of capital. The trouble is that our capital is not productive enough. And so from a variety of angles, we approached that from the general sense. And then we gave a whole slew of these, you know, you know things about governance and, you know, labor mobility and education and, you know, women in the economy uh, and, you know, tax measures and all sorts of things, entrepreneurship, innovation, that needed to be talked about a lot more and policies, you know, granular policies that were proposed uh, that were needed uh, for this. And that white paper was very well read in the government. It was far, this project was far more successful than I ever dreamed. Mm-hmm. It was a, a year out of my life, you know, killing myself late at night, writing the damn thing together with other people. At the end, at the end of the day, the guy who proposes to the ACG writes the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> <Or> <laughs> right, half, right. half of it. Half right, of right, it. right, right. And has to sort of edit it and spend more time on it. So it was a, a year out of my life, but um, it was so well read that uh, it was used as the blueprint in 2013, when uh, Prime Minister Abe came into power for economic structural reform, third era, they did exactly what we proposed. They got in the room, got the bureaucrats out of the room, and 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 uh, they even hired the same economists that we hired. Mm. And I was getting all these questions behind the scenes. You know, Nick, give us more policies. So, you know, ask us. You know, you know, we need we need more on this. Um, and that was one. So that put the idea of productivity as being essential for Japan's future. Mm right smack center as uh, the highest objective. And once you accept that, there are only two things you can do in an economy to improve productivity that don't cost fiscal money, which is our mm-hmm. problem, mm-hmm. You know, fiscal. Mm-hmm. And they are improving like, the labor markets, so labor matching and labor uh, yep. uh, function is more efficient. Um, and uh, governance, mm-hmm. and the way people manage companies. Okay. And so, you know, it leads, once you accept that, and you make as your, as they did in 2013, Productivity enhancement, your your highest and most priority, top priority goal for the government, it, it gave a perfect uh, sluice or segue, whatever the word is for me, to propose the corporate governance code. So I went to, and that's the second thing I would refer to, I went to a dynamic named uh, Mr. Shiozaki, mm-hmm. uh, Yasushi uh, Shiozaki, a wonderful man who is ex-BOJ. I had spoken to senior people in the BOJ before that, which kind of helped. Um, and proposed this corporate governance code with him, had a number of discussions and memos, which you, I think, saw um, to get that started. So the corporate governance code became this main pillar 
of Avonomics uh, growth strategy in 2014, because in 2013, while they had mouthed all these great themes that were in our white paper and that they thought of too, there was not enough meat in them. And everybody complained, hey, where's the meat? What's the concrete meat you're gonna do? What are you actually gonna do? And so they really needed some hardcore uh, substance to put in the 2014 next year in the growth strategy. And Shiozaki, uh, God bless his soul, went to the F FSA and the TSC and uh, just as I advised him, don't go to Medi, don't go to Medi, go to FSA for God's sakes. And um, why was that? Well, because Medi had been, you know, for the last 10 years talking to Kedanman before and getting their approval before they would actually propose anything. <laughs> okay. And of course, that's going to slow down stuff and it's going to be compromised away. Uh, the people being regulated, i.e., the companies, that's regulatory capture. Right, so regulatory capture in a, in a nutshell is, is when you talk to the regulatees before you write the final policy. <laughs> and so many of these guys, I don't wanna say this too loudly, but they've kind of messed up the system a lot by having, now we have three corporate governance structures in place. Mm. That's because of many and the way they've run the system mm. when they led the corporate governance policy wagon for the last 10 years or so, uh, 15 years or so up until 2013, 14. So mm -hmm. I insist on FSA, which is a much more logical place to put a corporate governance code because they're in charge of the stock exchange, which is usually in charge of governance codes. And, um, and they're in charge of financial markets, and they have jurisdiction, frankly, under the Setji uh, Hall establishment law of, of FSA. And I gave him the memos to convince other people if anyone had any doubts about that. And he did a marvelous job and convinced FSA and TSC to do this and wrapped up in a package and brought it to Aso Daijin and uh, Avesori who were just dying at that point to have some meat to put in a 2014 strategy. So um, Shiozaki and then the Corporate Governance Code, the, the Go Strategy Task Force, Shiozaki and the Corporate Governance Code are the three turning points. Of course, the Stewardship Code, which not many people know, was initially kind of floated as an idea by Mr. Ninami over at Suntory, mm -hmm. of all people, um, is one of the thing, other things that also helped a lot. Mm -hmm. um, by raising the notion that allowed me to sort of make the argument in my speech that your stewardship code will not work unless you have a corporate governance code, which is why I use this expression, the two wheels of a cart. Right. right? Was, and so that was locked together as well. But I wouldn't say the stewardship code has had nearly as much uh, uh, effect as it could, as mm. you hope it will in the future. Yeah. And what, why was that? Well, because they don't, the biggest problem now is it, unlike the UK stewardship code, it doesn't allow or enable collective, what they call collective action. Oh, right. By okay. signatories uh, or non-signatories that's not burdensome. Mm. In the UK, if you want to talk to some other fund and collectively you own more than three or it's 5% in the UK, but a certain amount, you 10 of you guys can get together and go talk to that company and say, well, we really think you should put these policies in place. Uh, but in Japan, if you are making an important, what they call an important suggestion, a juyo teyan koi, which includes almost anything that a seriously engaging asset manager should want to talk to the board about, you know, who's going to be on the board or um, the structure uh, of their corporate governance framework or 
um, you know, non-core assets, this kind of stuff, then uh, you have to go through a different uh, reporting framework for um, large holder reports. So you as a, a group own say 10% collectively means you have to file a joint report, joint holders report. And not only that, but it's on a more burdensome system than the normal report. And, then, and not only that, you have to sort of check this box, which says, I'm a possible activist. I'm a Julio Teancui, a person who makes important suggestions. Checking that box when you submit a large holder report is kind of like shaking, you know, raising your hand and waving your hands at the shareholder meeting saying, I, I could be an activist. <laughs> and large holders don't like to do this, even mm -hmm. if they're not. And they're just talking about normal engagement stuff. So Japan doesn't make it uh, easy to, to do collective engagement. And the stewardship code, because the rules are like that, doesn't encourage it very actively. It just simply says the collective engagement may be a useful thing. And that's because it can't say anymore. It's, uh, it's burdensome. If they said much more than that, it'd be encouraging people to do something which is actually a pain in the neck to do logistically. Mm. Given your your background. Um, I'm curious what you would think. Well, currently, I'm on the uh, on the Council of the New Form of Capitalism, established by Kishida, uh, Prime Minister. Um, and basically, what that means is, I think up until now, capitalism just didn't kind of ignore the exter externalities, effects that it has on the environment and in society. And, and, the, and the new form is, is supposed to incorporate the, that kind of externality and as a result um, be talking to more of the multi-stakeholders not just the shareholders not ignoring the shareholders is my my belief but uh, multi-stakeholders um, and, and in, in that engagement trying to uh, develop a, a model of growth to distribution to growth to distribution that, that kind of model this is the uh, the grand vision of, of new form of capitalism what do you think corporate governance should be assuming there is this new form of capitalism that stresses more about multi-stakeholder dialogue and externalities in our society? Well, I'm not a little bit old school in this kind of stuff that, you know, if you're trained in the law, you can't get it out of your brain. It's kind of inserted there like a microchip, I suppose. And, um, the so you know there's no even though I you know one part of my heart wants companies to be doing what's always good for society and the world in general and all stakeholders it is impossible to satisfy all parties at once in a sense because the, some of these things are trade-offs right a lot of these things are trade-offs and at the end of the day, the company is owned by shareholders. And there's just no getting away from that legal reality. Now we, we can, you know, walk a few steps away from that by encouraging employee ownership. We could have employee representatives on the board, uh, things like this. I have been on panels where I thought, hey, that's an idea. And it, what's interesting is that people in Sangyokai, in an industrial community next to you, hate this idea of employee <laughs> representatives because, you know, you know, they, you know, there'd be lots of leaks and, you know, this guy's not qualified. And 
what's really <laughs> interesting to see how many negative reactions you get from Japanese management. Really, really. No, no, it, it, it's fascinating. And, and I'm the guy saying, well, you know, hey, <laughs> you know, it might might kind of stir up the board a bit and you know, being watched, you know, if the guy says nothing often has a good effect on boards, right? That's why mm-hmm. outside directors, even mm-hmm. one or two make a significant mm-hmm. difference on Japanese board. So it, what I'm trying to say though, is that at the end of the day, what we have to think about more is making it in the shareholders' interests to do all these good things. And to do that, you gotta make it in not only shareholders, but executives' interests and end asset owners and asset managers' interests to do all these good things. And our present system doesn't maximize incentives. In fact, it goes the wrong direction of incentives to do a lot of those things. So that's why, you know, you may have seen, I, I, you know, I've written recent articles pointing out this, that this is the, the key issue behind why there's a limit to how much ESG and sustainability investing can work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a nice thought in practice, but in, in, in theory, but in, in, in practice, the incentives often run entirely the wrong direction because we have, you know, well, stock me, incentives that are two years to that. Sure, sure. Let me let, okay. Let me um, ask you this standpoint. Legally, legally speaking, legally speaking, shareholders are not classified to short-term shareholders. To long, like day traders, if they own the share, has the same rights as a shareholder that's held the share for thirty years. Right, um, from and legally, right, and then then from the company standpoint, legally they have an obligation to either both because they have the <clears throat> they're the same legally. Right. Um, but as the company, they should have the the right to be say, well, I would rather have this shareholder, as, uh, this investor, as my shareholder, long term shareholder rather than a guy that's punting around. So they have to they have to follow all the legal legal requirements the same, all the disclosure has to be the same. But can the company have the freedom to to shape their narrative to say I would rather have these investors as our shareholders rather than these. Right, they can if the existing shareholders agree with it. Mm-hmm. You know, if they they can shape their narrative and their strategy as they and the executives want to. Um, but of course, if the existing shareholders don't agree with it, everyone's gonna be voted out and they'll all be replaced with people who mm-hmm. have some other strategy. Right. And, and we can't get away from that reality is kind of what I'm okay. pointing out. Um, and if, if you want to talk about distributions to, for instance, particularly to the labor, part, uh, you know, the labor equation, the workers of the company, which actually not just in Japan's case, but in other countries as well, um, you know, that's the bumpaiditsu or distribution mm-hmm. rate of profits to labor has been decreasing over the last 30 years or so. In general, in the world, Japan's an extreme case of that, but in, in general, that's the way it's been going. But if you want to change that, the better way in, in, in Japan to to, to do it, to me, is to focus on the labor market, improve efficiency of the labor market, i.e. allow long-term employee contracts, contracts that could be long-term, where, however, I can fire you if I pay severance on your years of service. So 
the advantage of a long-term contract is that I have an incentive to train you and to increase mm-hmm. your productivity uh, and, and give you experiences that improve your uh, contribution to the company over time. If I have to train you for only three years or five years and then fire you, which is kind of like the incentive the present law gives, I have very little incentive to train you. And that is the direction Japan is going now, which is a very bad direction. The, yeah, after employing someone for five years or however many years, three years, you must flip them into a uh, regular employee contract or not. What that means for most companies is that, or not, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just, you know, flip it into somebody else, fire that mm-hmm. person and go on. And I won't train them much. Whereas what we need is a, uh, a labor market that uh, promotes the, uh, or, or incents investment in talent and mm-hmm. uh, training and promoting the right people promoting women who are outperformers or men who are outperformers versus not. Mm-hmm. So we're not locked into Nenko Joretsu. Mm-hmm. And so the longer performers, the better performers will be on long-term as employees and the worst performers, I can fire them, terminate them with severance pay, which gives right. a safety net to them because they work for five years. So it's a big pot of severance money that they're going to get mm-hmm. when they leave. That's kind of what the German system works in terms of labor law. That would so once you improve productivity of your labor, then you have a natural incentive as executives to pay these people more because mm-hmm. they're contributing to your profit more. Right. And if your uh, own compensation is tied to profit and stock price and that kind of thing, you're going to do more to make them stay, be yeah. nicer to them, not as much overtime. You know, no. uh, this is the virtuous cycle uh, that we should be trying to work through. The way to work for it, most of all in Japan's case, is through the labor law. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, mm-hmm. through governance per se, in my view. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, that, that's that's uh, that's the message I've been sending at the council, actually, because <laughs> they're, 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 you know, they're, they're always talking about trying to raise wages and, and having you know tax, tax uh, incentives. I mean, like, well, that might work for one year, but that's not going to be sustainable, right? But you just need to increase the, you know, the liquidity in the labor market. I mean, otherwise, there's no way there's going to be a systemic rise in wages. I also think um, it's uh, particularly for somebody in a leadership position like yourself. I, I really think it's it's not too early to start a discourse on the themes I put in that crazy article recently. You know, I would I would love mm-hmm. it if guys like you and me could be folks who stir up the pot of thinking and discourse so that mm-hmm. we really do start to ask these questions that are kind of naked emperors in the room that are not being asked. Mm-hmm. Now, is, is, it, is it right to give full limited liability to a company, not, not sort of tax it in some way or put some restrictions on the full limited liability aspect of that uh, in the capital market? Because that is what leads to a natural incentive to create externalities and, and, and mm-hmm. go bankrupt and be unable to pay for those externalities. Mm-hmm. That's the opioid crisis and the asbestos crisis and credit derivatives, all, all these things, which are the basic, biggest examples of, of externalities happen mm-hmm. because of the wonder of limited liability where you can go bankrupt mm-hmm. and not have to pay for the class action, you know, billions of dollars sued against you. That's horrible, but we are mm-hmm. allowing it happen by not realizing that the corporate law, which created limited liability for the industrial revolution 150 years ago, when we didn't have huge amounts of capital 
and we mm-hmm. need to attract it from individuals, people, and it's their own money, right? Um, now, we, we lots and lots of capital in these institutions. Is full liability make, make full sense? We have to start thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's why I propose this system where you, you know, you would have classes of two classes of stock for companies. And you could structure this to get, you put that in your article yeah, to corporation, yeah, you could right, yeah. make this corporation happen tomorrow. You don't mm-hmm. need uh, them to change the company law to do a lot of what I propose. But, you know, one one uh, class of stock, you, 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 what you do is in, every time somebody trades the stock, you take 15 basis points out of the trade, which is, used to be a, a brokerage commission here in Japan. So it's not mm-hmm. that much money. And uh, you put aside the trust fund in case we go bankrupt in the next seven years or so. We're going to take that money out and pay for the externality uh, to the class action claimants um, uh, as uh, in part of bankruptcy. So they're going to be paid out more mm-hmm. for externalities that otherwise they wouldn't be paid for because it's this kitty that we set aside in the trust fund at the mm-hmm. outset of every trade. Mm-hmm. And the more the stock trades, the more the little, little, little bits and you know, rice mm-hmm. grain yep. after rice grain goes into the kitty. Yep. And uh, you've got a little cushion that goes beyond your Shihonkin capital paid for externalities. And the point of that is that if seven years after you sell the stock, uh, there are no externalities that cause bankruptcy, you're going to get the money back. So in that... Wait, wait, how do you get, how, how do you get the money back? You get the money back because that's how the system works. It's set up that the mm-hmm. money goes to trust fund mm-hmm. and we keep track of who owns what stock through block. Oh, okay. All right. Um, and if, you know, seven years after you sold, last sold the stock, turns out seven years ago, up until you sold the stock, you elected a good board. They did a good job of maintaining sustainability of this company. So it hasn't gone bankrupt since. Well, we're going to take the money out of the trust fund that you put in, your 15 basis points, and give it back to you. Hmm. So the idea basically is that if you vote responsibly why you own the stock, and if others vote responsibly for enough years afterwards, i.e., and you voted for that board that just pre sold the stock that's in place, um, you're going to get the money back. But if you are irresponsible and you do not vote and other people do not vote responsibly, the company goes down the tubes with opioid damages, et cetera. Then, or you know, it's Enron or whatever, yeah. then you won't get the money back. Now that would change asset owners and asset managers and how they invest massively. What? Because every time you trade, it, it, first of all, it decrease short-term trading, right? Because think think what the pressure would put on short-term trading. Because of the 15 basis points, right? Yeah, every time yeah. I trade, it's right. boom, boom, boom. It's yeah. a much better incentive for long-term investing. Invest in good company. You you do a lot more analysis about is this company really good? Are they really managed long term? Does it have a good board? Is it truly sustainable? Or I'm not going to get in it because I only want to invest in things long term. Keep holding it so I don't have so I minimize the defect mm. basis point tax. And uh, you know that gets reflected in stock prices. Companies that have more investors who act that way. Since it's all transparent, who owns what stock? We know, oh, those very, very, very assiduous stewards, uh, this investment mm-hmm. fund and that investment fund and this mm-hmm. asset manager, they're all in that stock, but they're not in this stock. People will follow that just the way they follow you know, executive trades of stock as a very meaningful source of information as to whether it's a good company or not. 
Mm. So right now what we have is a non-transparent system, right? Where we don't know the beneficial owners mm -hmm. and the beneficial owners and the asset managers are not incented through their incentive structures to behave long-term. And at the same time, nobody is ever penalized for or has to pay for the costs of limited liability that appear as externalities. We, we need to change all that so that incentive mm. structures don't work the wrong way. They work the right way throughout the mm. whole incentive, the whole, whole uh, yeah. investment yeah. chain. And that is how asset managers will be doing a lot less greenwashing mm. and real sustainability management. Right. They have an incentive. And in, in what I'm proposing, the asset managers would be forced to own the same portfolio that they're investing in. So 30% of their cumulative uh, income would have to be invested in the same stocks with the same 15 basis point tax that they won't get back if companies blow up. So, you know, in other words, it's, it's, we don't have all these incentives right. in the investment chain. And as a result, the investment chain talks a lot and the financial players in it talk a lot about, and to me, a lot of this greenwashing, frankly, ESG mm. sustainability, and they talk about accountability, but they themselves don't put themselves under much accountability. When was the last time you talked to an investment and asset manager whose compensation, you know, 40% of his compensation was, yeah. would be determined seven years from now where the stocks that he invested in went? You know yeah. one like that? Actually, there was a uh, impact fund in Brazil or South America that was sort of Kind of aligned to that. They they put half of their they put half of their incentives in, in in their impact measurement targets. If it doesn't reach that target, they don't get paid. In how many years? I don't know. It's it's, it's, it's a it was a, a private equity fund, so so it's it's on, upon exit. But but yeah. unless it's it's not just oh, it's I not just right, right, right. it's not just the capital gains, but also the uh, impact. Well, I'm happy to hear that there are people thinking that way. I mean, what's happening now though is that. The asset managers are not getting paid that way. Yeah. The asset owners are not getting paid that way. And executives, if you're lucky, 5% of his total salary is determined by the ESG rating of Dow Jones. Yeah. That's not going to move the needle. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I think we're on the same page here because like for for this, you know, for what we call a new form of capitalism, I think. If the message is out there saying that you know the, there's problems with competitions, if there's problems with the markets, and, and, you know the market and the and the economy is not going to take that message very well, right? So it's more about aligning the incentives for competition, incentives yeah. for the market in the right way. And so, and so I agree with you on the securities. I mean, like they're talking about securities tax, you know, on capital gains. I'm thinking, well, that's not going to be taken that well by the market. But I was thinking the same thing. But per transaction, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, it, the, the the day traders and the high frequency traders might get upset. But hey, I don't care. Know. I mean, you know, don't quote <laughs> so. me, but I'm already on this podcast, so you will. <laughs> I guess I do that one. But um, let's face it: you know, high frequency uh. traders and and short term volatility traders uh. are are not the the folks that we want to incent. To invest more and more and more and more. I mean, if, if yeah. the entire market turns into that, we're in a little bit of trouble. Yeah. Because there won't be any anybody uh, thinking about long-term sustainability, so that my grandchildren will have a world to live in that's worthwhile. Exactly. All right. Um, well, 
I'm sure I got a busy schedule today and I got to jump for another uh, thing coming up. You're a, you're a wizard this. Oh man. man. It's like, and you should go nah, commercial. Nah, I don't think you're, so. You're good at this stuff. No, 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 But one, one last closing remark is you mentioned that you were a doer, right? I um, guess I am. Yeah. yeah you, saw, you said, you said that yourself. <laughs> so, but if you had to characterize yourself as an animal, what kind of animal are you? <laughs> Wow. Oh, that clearly be a monkey. I am monkey? A, I, am, yeah. I am a monkey. I am a monkey by under, you know, the Buddhist calendar. Yeah. And um, um <laughs> when I was at, at Live Their Holdings, we were cleaning up the place after the scandal. My 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 buddy there, because I so yeah. cleaned up so many things, used to call me Pyro Monkey. Yeah. I could cause good trouble. Yeah. Um, pyro, pyro, pyro monkey. Well, it, it, he he used to be a firefighter. So okay, all right. And then, you know, good trouble was cleaning up fires. Okay. And and I would sort of start this issue that we, we have to clean up. Um, no, it definitely be a monkey uh, because <laughs> my nature is is uh, a little bit combative. Some might say, but um, I I I hope in a very it, it's intended to be an ex- extremely constructive way right. um, to say the things that need to be said that other people are not saying. Uh, I use words to advantage. And I, if I say to myself, I'm a, I'm a pretty good negotiator. So these no. are all kind of monkey traits, I, I think. No. <laughs> I also, when I was a kid, I used to love climbing trees. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think it's in the DNA somewhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. All right. Okay. So well, what about you? <laughs> I think I'm a tanuki, <laughs> raccoon or something, right? <laughs> All right, Your monkeys can get along with tanuki. I think so. I think so as well. <laughs> well All best right. Of so, luck on on your your mission. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, like, likewise, likewise, likewise. Um, so, a lot more to talk about there. Yeah, yeah. I think there are some issues that we can definitely collaborate on so so looking forward to that um these are very deep issues and i don't yeah yeah, yeah. don't profess to have the answers so much as the ability to stir it up a lot yeah well i mean the you know whether it's a monkey or a raccoon some, somebody needs to stir the pot every once in a while right, while, right? so okay great all right Good thanks luck. so much all right thanks bye, bye. <laughs> Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You know, I thought Nick was going to describe himself as a bulldog, actually, because of his tenacity and his commitment to what he's doing. But I think you'll agree with me that what Nick wants to do is to do good. And doing good, despite all the obstacles, is obviously an important recipe for all of us. So until the next episode of Made with Japan, please have a nice day or evening, wherever you are.